Welcome back, everyone. This is season two of So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Reeves. Hello, everyone. Uh, David, thanks for uh, having me back for season two. Mike, it's always a pleasure. Um, we've got a lot to talk about. Season one, we really delved into more theory, trying to really set up how we view our paradigm for practice, things that we look at almost in a more vague and general sense. This season, I want to get a little bit more specific, looking at specific joints or regions, how we approach those particular joints, and then talk a little bit more about research when it comes to our evaluation and treatment. I think it'll be uh, an exciting conversation. And since season one, Mike has uh, started seeing a few patients in his cash business. So I just want to say uh, congratulations to you, Mike. I know it's always challenging to jump in the uh, entrepreneurship and you don't know what's going to happen, but it seems like things are going well. So I wanted to congratulate you. Well, thank you, David. And I think the larger achievement of the two of us is that you got married since season one. So congratulations there. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> married man. I'm, I'm, a cha- I'm a changed man, but I'm, I'm loving, uh, <laughs> loving being a husband. So that's, that's good. All right. Well, Mike, today we're going to talk about the shoulder. Um, I want to introduce it almost as a vague topic and then kind of get into some details wherever the conversation takes us. First thing I want to do is just kind of set up how we condense all the information. I feel like the shoulder is one of those joints that can be really complicated or really simple, depending how you corner the information. So I think whenever it comes to a paradigm for practice, it's always good to help create subgroups, create categories to help you uh, streamline your decision making. So let's um, jump into how we actually do that and what are some of the categories that you like to group patients into. And again, these aren't absolute categories. It's just to kind of help you get started and streamline your evaluation and treatment decision making based on on what you see for for that evaluation. So Mike, what are some categories that that really stick out in your mind when when you're looking at a shoulder patient and trying to decide, okay, what is going to be my evaluative process for this patient? Yeah, uh, I think the probably the first thing is just acute versus chronic, right? So if you have someone that suffered an acute injury, you do have um, like a realistic time frame of, of healing phases that you expect that shoulder to need to go through as you go throughout your rehab process. So that needs to come into play um, much more so than with a chronic patient where it's probably going to be mostly based uh, just on irritability, um, maybe some exacerbating and like relieving factors, and then just kind of go from there. But you're not really keeping your healing time frames in your brain as much. Right. That's very important. There's actually a study uh, from JOSPT, I think it was 2016 or 2017, where they looked at patients with chronic shoulder pain, and they actually observed changes in the median nerve as far as like picando sensitivity to uh, stretch, specifically with like neural tension positions, things like that. Uh, so those are always things to consider when you're managing chronic upper limb pain is including neural tension as an evaluation procedure and as a treatment if indicated. I think that was a really interesting article that kind of just provided a little bit more proof to things that we were already thinking as far as that profession and, and knowing how chronic nerve changes can influence the pain experience. Let's jump into whether it's acute or chronic. Chronic, you're probably going to see a lot of different pathoanatomic diagnoses from the imaging from the physician. And at that point, you kind of have to question how relevant they are or aren't versus, you know, depending on age, they could have just attritional rotator cuff tears. So you don't really want to focus yourself on they have this specific pathoanatomic diagnosis. What do I do for that, especially when it's chronic? Um, with acute, obviously, 
the pathoanatomy, the healing times are a little bit more relevant. So let's talk about what categories you actually can classify patients into to streamline your decision making, Mike. Few easy ones are is it hypermobile or is it hypomobile? So that's pretty simply to be done most of the times when people walk in. If you're dealing with a more of an elderly population, probably gonna say most of them are gonna be more more on the hypomobile side. And then you can also look into is this more of like an impingement type syndrome that I'm seeing, or is it just kind of stiff and painful? And then what what can I do if it is something along the impingement? continuum. Uh, what are the things that I can address with this person to help decrease that? Is there some postural flaws that, that, that I can address um, where they need to increase mobility of shoulder, thoracic spine, cervical spine? Or is it more in that hyper hypermobile classification where I might want to be working more on rotator cuff and scapular strength? Right. And I think going off the hypermobile classification, you always want to think of your tubs and your ambry. So your tubs is going to be more of like your traumatic unidirectional football player um, gets hit, dislocates their shoulder, and they're going to have a unidirectional instability based from that trauma. So with that one, that's going to be more of your acute case, maybe managed surgically or non-surgically, depending on the severity. But uh, if it's it's a traumatic sport, I'm going to assume surgically. And and then you want to think about your ambry, which is going to be more of your atraumatic, multidirectional. These are just people with loose shoulders. And most of the time, they'll try some conservative PT, improve some rotator cuff activation, improve stability of the musculature surrounding the joint to um, prevent those recurrent dislocations from occurring. These are going to be most likely your individuals with uh, higher Baton scores. That's going to be your hypermobile patients that are just globally hypermobile. And that's just going to be a hodgepodge of strengthening stability. You really get a lot of leeway with, with your treatment and your interventions when it comes to those patients. And then looking at the hypomobile shoulder, this one's always challenging because at least from what I've seen, I've seen a lot of people get diagnosed with frozen shoulder that wasn't a true frozen shoulder. And it's kind of challenging, I would say, to decipher, is the patient guarding? Is this a true joint restriction? So frozen shoulder is the underlying mechanism. And again, it's not fully understood, but it's a non-inflammatory synovial angiogenesis. They characterize it as a reactive synovitis. So some type of stimulus causes the capsule to actually start becoming adherent to itself and, and tightening. There are contributors that can cause this to occur, such as thyroid disorder, diabetes, autoimmune disorder. I remember reading an article a while ago. I was doing a little bit of research trying to learn more about chronic pain and this type of uh, neuroscience changes that occur with chronic pain. And what I was kind of thinking to myself was, I wonder how many of these diagnosed frozen shoulders are just a product of our medical system as far as, you know, my shoulder starts to hurt. Maybe I overdid it. Maybe nothing happened. Either way, I go see my PCP. I think it's just going to go away. PCP sends me to the ortho. I get in with the ortho a week or two later, maybe get some imaging, maybe don't. And by the time I've actually gotten to physical therapy or gone to see the ortho, it may have been, you know, four to six weeks. So I'm thinking how much of this is just a product of delaying treatment for an acute issue. And then there are those with predisposition to frozen shoulder with some of those underlying conditions that I discussed previously. And maybe if we can address these individuals through direct access or get to them a little bit sooner, if we could decrease that prevalence. Of course, that's pure speculation, just more my, my brain kind of ticking when I was reading about acute versus chronic shoulder pain and, and trying to figure out that pathophysiology of a frozen shoulder. Is it really insidious or are there variables that we can control? 
frozen shoulders definitely out there. I've treated some true frozen shoulders that follow that that nine to twelve month timetable, going through all the phases. But I think it's overdiagnosed in those with chronic shoulder pain, those that don't have a lot of range of motion but just were kind of mismanaged. So I think with those, like you mentioned earlier, I take more of a stage based approach, which I would probably do anyways with frozen shoulder. But I do see some faster results in those chronic shoulder patients than than those true frozen shoulders that have that really springy capsular end feel when I'm trying to get to end range of of motion and, and joint mobility. Yeah, I agree. And I think some of the overdiagnosis probably tends to be kind of what, what you learn in school as to like what a frozen shoulder, like like how, how to diagnose. And it's that progressive loss of external rotation and inflection, some night pain. Um, and so... Uh, I think they have like cutoff scores of greater than what is it like 20 degrees of external rotation or something along those lines. And so if you go into a PCP, for instance, uh, and they go and, and if that's all that their knowledge is and they see a loss of range of motion, and external rotation, a loss of range of motion, inflection and some night pain, they're just in their brain just going to go up, oh, frozen shoulder, go to PT. That's my thinking on, that's at least what I saw in um, some of kind of my, my, my travel locations was that I had multiple people diagnosed with, with frozen shoulder and it just didn't seem to fit the bill whenever they would, would come to see me. And, and that, that was my thinking is many of them would come from a PCP and that's probably just their simple diagnosis, you know, their criteria. Um, and then they send them to us. So I think it's, it's up to us to determine if this is someone that we can actually help in the short term. Or if it's more a true frozen shoulder, just kind of getting them set up on some home program, maybe do some light joint mobs. Um, but that thing probably will end up needing to go through it, it, its full process. So making sure that we're kind of doing our due diligence, letting them know that, okay, th- this is something that that could be a while. I'll help you out in the short term here. We'll get you set up on a program. Then we'll probably discontinue this for, for a little while to get back in here once you feel like you're starting to get a little bit more motion back in this thing. So. Right. And I think educating our patients on the actual phases, if you believe that it's a true frozen shoulder early on when they're really painful before they've started to lose a significant amount of motion, these patients actually respond fairly well to uh, corticosteroid injection, mm-hmm. which is not something that I typically um, advocate for in the shoulder too often, just because of the effects that it has towards rotator cuff strengthening. It's an anti-inflammatory, so it's going to be detrimental to any strengthening you're doing. I usually tend to, if I advocate for anything more of an analgesic versus a corticosteroid, but in that early phase, they do tend to react well to that and it helps decrease pain. Now this doesn't prevent it from going through its phases. They still get to that freezing and frozen stage. And once they're frozen, it's really not painful. It's just kind of stiff. This is when you can kind of just start working on that shoulder little by little. I think it's one of those things where you try to control what you can control, use your best judgment, And then once it gets to thawing, that's when you really start to address some of the secondary deficits that come with a frozen shoulder. You're going to have decreased scapulohumeral rhythm, probably some rotator cuff weakness just from not being able to engage the musculature through a full range of motion. So I think that's when we really can step in and and help restore normal shoulder function after they've gone through that whole experience. Let's transition a little bit here to the more common, the most general category that you'll probably see. This is going to be your rotator cuff, tendonitis, tendinopathy, shoulder impingement. This is going to fall into two subcategories. You're either going to have a sudden onset, maybe a tissue overload. And then your other one is just going to be um, gradual onset. Maybe they just had no idea what caused it. And then this is when you want to look at your contributing factors. 
And I think they don't live in isolation. I think you have to look at volume of loading. You have to look at potential contributors, such as thoracic spine posture, rotator cuff strength, scapular positioning. There's tons of contributors that we'll discuss here uh, as we move forward. But I think this is going to be your most common category. So I want to go a little bit deeper into what we look at in the evaluation, what we feel is important, what's not too important. Mike, talk to me a little bit about some contributors that you feel are the most important or the most common that you see in these individuals. I mean, I think you kind of hit it with what you're talking about with, um, you know, posture, scapular humeral rhythm, and just basic general strength, I think is, I think is important too. But obviously if someone comes in with that significant kind of like forward shoulder kind of slumped over kyphotic posture, I think that's probably one of the easiest places to start. One thing to do is see if, if you kind of correct that posture, whether you have them do it voluntarily or you kind of manually do it a little bit, either by having them sit a little bit more upright or kind of by repositioning their, their scapula with your hands with kind of that scapular repositioning test. Is, is that what it's called? Um, yeah, there's a scapular repositioning, which is you facilitate facilitate them into retraction. Mm-hmm. Th- then you don't assist with the shoulder blade. They just go for the motion. So that would be scapular repositioning. And then scapular assistance is where you actually facilitate that upward rotation. Yeah. And the repositioning is going to help put the supraspinatus in a better link tension relationship and the periscapular musculature as well. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially just doing your best to um, facilitate appropriate rotator cuff activation by positioning the scapula to put everything out of a little bit better of a mechanical advantage and also just creating a little bit more space underneath that acromion for the kind of humeral hub to rotate a little bit more smoothly. And if that seems to work well, then you're on the right path with producing those changes, whether it be through strengthening, stretching, postural exercises, manual therapy techniques, you, you at least ha- ha- have a general idea of, of where you want to go with treatment. Um, the other thing is doing, uh, David had talked about last season, um, simple exercise where you have the patients externally rotate into a theraband and then go into elevation, essentially just kicking on the posterior rotator cuff um, and seeing if that helps to do whatever it does. If you want to say that the posterior cuff creates uh, more centering as well as a little bit of an inferior glide, sure, um, that's biomechanically what it does. But either way, if you, if you get, get relief with, with a motion that, that makes sense, that tends to be a direction to go with treatment. Yeah, and I think when you're looking at um, upper limb injuries, the neck and the shoulder are just so interrelated. I know um, in one study, it looked at the effect of increased cervical lordosis on shoulder function, and it demonstrated that those with increased cervical lordosis actually had decreased uh, subacromial space with active elevation. So it really kind of ties into how that forward head rounded thoracic spine is really going to contribute to that decreased subacromial space, especially as you get to overhead positions. And then again, this these aren't absolutes. That doesn't guarantee that you're going to have pain, but it's kind of like like if you smoke, it's a risk factor for developing lung cancer. It's a, it's a risk factor. Just because some people smoke and don't develop lung cancer doesn't mean that it's not a contributor. So it's kind of the same thing. You have these risk factors, they're not absolutes, but when you combine risk factors with a poor loading regimen or tissue overload or a sudden increase in activity, then you've created an environment for these injuries to develop. So I think really looking at risk factors and potential contributors, even though they may not be direct contributors, I know there's a lot of research or meta-analysis systematic reviews that just say, well, we really don't know if posture is associated with pain because there are some people that have poor posture, but they don't have pain. 
And I think this is just a product of living in a multivariable environment. You're not going to have a direct contributor because there's so many mechanical variables, force variables, volume, volume and rate of loading that you can't isolate one specific direct contributor in a study. But that aside, I'll step off the soapbox on that one. I kind of ran away, (laughs) ran away with that one. Um, Some of the things that I wanted to recap on that Mike just discussed that I think are your heavy hitters are obviously your rotator cuff activation, whether it was weakness that caused their condition or whether it's just muscle inhibition from the pain process. Regardless, you're going to want to strengthen those rotator cuff muscles. You're going to want to look at thoracic spine posture, look at the influence of their posture on their pain. Again, forward head, another one you want to try to decrease that cervical lordosis, maybe facilitating some chin tucks, getting them into a little bit more of or less of a forward head position and getting their shoulder in a better environment to move. Now, it's not realistic to think that they're going to maintain this, but if you can get them moving in a better environment while this process resolves, that can potentially get them out of pain. Or if they have a job where they're repetitively reaching overhead, just providing them with the education and awareness to help improve their environment for the shoulder to move. That's something interesting that I saw. There's a rotator cuff tendinopathy article in JOSPT that discusses how a significant proportion of individuals with rotator cuff tendinitis tendinopathy tend to have some type of radiating arm pain or hyperalgesia to pinprick. Um, So it's really interesting just to see the nervous system changes, um, really bringing it back to looking at neuromobilization in these individuals as a means to desensitize and decrease pain. And then you never want to forget about your AC joint, your SE joint. Your shoulder has so many moving parts. There was a study in JOSPT that demonstrated and observed decreased elevation, posterior rotation, posterior rotation and retraction of the clavicle on the sternum with active elevation. So SE mobilization is not something we really talk about in school. Um, essentially, what I do is I take them into shoulder flexion where I feel that clavicle starting to posteriorly rotate, and then I apply an inferior glide. If you remember, the sternoclavicular joint is a saddle joint, so it's going to be um, opposite rolling glide, superior, inferior, and then same rolling glide, anterior, posterior. So if you're trying to um, improve active shoulder flexion, you're going to think of a superior roll, inferior glide, and that's the direction you're going to want to apply your glide is inferiorly um, as they get to that position where the, the clavicle is starting to posteriorly rotate. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And one thing it's, you know, one of these patients just haven't moved in a while. Right. So I, I tend to be not like crazy, crazy hands-on. Like I'm not going to spend 30 minutes with these patients doing hands-on techniques. Right. If you feel something that feels super stiff, work on it for a couple minutes until it feels like it loosens up a little bit and then have them move into the motion that you want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, you know, one thing to be like, oh, I understand that this is stiff and thinking that your joint mobilization is what's going to heal them. But really, it's more the just kind of loosen things up a little bit so you can just encourage them to have that motion occur when they're actually doing the exercises that you want them to do that are going to help keep them better long term. Right. Yeah, I think that's an important clarification to make because your heavy hitters, again, are going to be periscapular strengthening, rotator cuff strengthening. I really only go more to these off the beaten path type of interventions, like a mobilization of the SC joint. If it's someone who's just kind of plateaued for like four or five visits, I feel like my loading exercise prescriptions on point and I'm just trying to pull at another contributor that I could potentially influence. But I would say I use that mobilization in 5% of shoulder cases, really. Um, We're just uh, trying to 
really give multiple angles that, that you may have not considered. And I think one angle that, that we should talk about, especially when it comes to a more athletic population, is the entire body contributing to sh- certain shoulder motions, especially in your throwers. You got to look at the hips. You got to look at their trunk. You've got to look at their thoracic rotation. There's a lot of variables all the way down the chain that are really going to influence this. And uh, Emily's grandpa is actually going to love love that I brought this up because he brought it up during the holidays. He brought up J. Hannah Dean, Dizzy Dean. And this was a uh, professional baseball player. He was a pitcher. And during the 1937 All-Star Game, Dizzy Dean fractured his big toe. Uh, a ground ball hit him straight in the big toe. So Dizzy Dean... Obviously got pulled from the game, did his rehab, tried to come back next season. Within a few months, I don't even think he finished the season, threw his arm out. And the reason was, is it was his big toe that was required for push-off during the pitch. So that injury to his big toe actually resulted in him overworking his shoulder, overworking his arm. He had to try to throw a lot harder from the shoulder musculature just because his push off from the big toe wasn't contributing as much ended his baseball career crazy so it's just a crazy story because you would you would never assume how important that push off is from the big toe during a pitch and it's it's crucial it ended a an all-star hall of famers baseball career um, yeah. so just something to always consider even looking all the way down to the foot do they have enough great toe extension again you don't want to get lost in all of these things but you really want to make sure you know how every specific joint, as far as thoracic rotation, hip rotation, push off through the big toe, all of these things are contributing to the movement. And this is going to be obviously when you get to your your phase three, your final phase, your movement reintroduction and sports specific training, you want to be able to identify what contributors are going to be detrimental or crucial to their failure or success. Um, one thing that's important to note is that When someone has rotator cuff tendinopathy, their outcomes with surgery are equivalent to therapy, and they actually have less sick leave, faster return to work, and reduced expenses when they undergo therapy. And you can say that with confidence. That's quoted from rotator cuff tendinopathy article in JOSPT. Again, Mike and I are just going to kind of spitball and quote a lot of research as we go, and we didn't want to bore you with authors and names. But if you ever want to reach out and read a little bit deeper and, and look at that article more closely, just leave a comment, send us a message and we can send you the specific article. Mike, any other contributors that you want to get into here as far as things that may increase the likelihood of impingement or other variables that you might want to address to create a comprehensive uh, program? Um, I think we hit on most of the heavy hitters. And, you know, I think some simple things with throwers you kind of mentioned on, you know, thoracic rotation, arm positioning. Are they super tight through their, um, like, adductors and hamstrings? decreasing that stride length, which, which is going to increase some of the strain on their arm. What does their balance look like when they stride forward and hit the ground? Are they getting a little bit of kind of wobble through through their hips and core, which in turn will kind of create some increased strain on the shoulder? Are they kind of fall, falling out, out of the throw? So that's something that is much you know too far out of the scope of this podcast to discuss. Um, yeah, maybe we'll do a throwers one here pretty soon. If not this season, maybe season three. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. And I think before we jump into exercise and treatment and things that that we like to do as far as interventions based on the research, I did want to mention always looking at the posterior capsule. I think this is one that can be found to be tight, especially with just the forward shoulders or the rounded shoulders, forward head. I wanted to talk about obligate translatory motion. This You might have heard of this as circle theory. 
that when one part of the capsule is tight, you might actually create excessive translation in another direction. And I know the research on the actual arthrokinematics of different joints is kind of being challenged and it's not an absolute. But again, I, I really try not to get too caught up in proving someone's right or wrong. I keep it in mind if it's a contributor, if it's not, I move on. Given that it's a very low risk, potentially high reward intervention to mobilize someone's posterior capsule, I just do it if I think it's if it's tight compared to the other side. And again, that's very subjective, but it's something that's pretty easy to address. It can give you some benefit if if you're on the mark. Posterior capsule tightness is going to cause excessive anterior gliding, anterior translation, which could contribute to that impingement. Same thing for inferior. If inferior capsule's tight, you're going to get too much superior translation, superior migration contribute to that impingement. So I always like to get them toward end range if they can tolerate and do some posterior inferior glides. Is that something you typically do, Mike? What's your experience with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely work on some joint mobilizations. Um, I think my, my big thing is, one, there are certain patients where you'll you'll mobilize them and you'll actually be able to kind of like appreciate a little bit of change. And there's others where I feel like I don't have as much of a benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, That'll be kind of something that that I play around with a little bit, like with, with some patients. If I'm if I'm feeling that as I work on them, I consistently from visit to visit get a change. That's something that that I think that I will probably have more benefit with throughout the course of a physical therapy plan of care. Someone who feels a little bit stiffer, like maybe I'm just not going to get there without an excessive amount of work, and maybe I'll try and work on a few other things, um, whether it be strengthening, you know, self exercises. And things that like actually in session can reduce their pain because that's something that I think I might get more benefit from long term. It's not that my mobilizations would never work, right? Just that I just don't think that throughout our plan of care, I'm not going to be able to get them in at a high enough volume to actually create a change for that person. So try and figure out ways that I can best help the person in front of me, even if in an ideal world, I might be able to create a little more change. Right. And I think that brings up an important topic that we kind of touched on in season one. And that's um, remembering that your treatment doesn't always have to be linear or the same. Someone might come in and they might not be able to handle a lot of active exercise. They may just have the resiliency and they may benefit from those mobilizations. And then as you transition to more strengthening, higher level movements, you may not get that same effect like you were mentioning with that mobilization and you might decide to prioritize with other more important interventions. So I think that's important to remember is your treatment's always changing. Don't feel like because you did posterior inferior glide on day one and you got improvement, they may have needed that on day one, but on day day four, visit four, could be a whole different ballgame. You may have a different patient who's now transitioned to a different phase of rehab and might have different needs at that point in time. So it's just always something to consider. I think that's a good point that you mentioned of, you know, if you think it's important, you do it. If you get the bang for your buck, you keep doing it. And then the minute that, that positive effect goes away, then you start to reevaluate and reassess and see what else is going to provide that next push forward. The last thing I wanted to touch on before we move on is that same rotator cuff tendinopathy article discusses how rotator cuff fatigue may contribute to superior humeral migration and fatigue of the serratus and lower trap may contribute to decreased chromial elevation. I think we always talk about strengthening, but I think muscle endurance is a huge thing, especially with your athletes who are going to be doing repetitive movements. What I would recommend is changing your program design or adding some variability. Like if you're doing like 12 rep maxes on one day, maybe doing a 20 rep max with lighter weight, switching in some endurance with some strengthening just to address that potential contributor. Because you may have someone who's strong, who may have no pain with movement, but then they go back to their job at a factory reaching overhead 
eight hours a day and that rotator cuff endurance just isn't enough to handle that type of volume. Yeah, I, I think that's important. I think with most of my rotator cuff specific exercises, if I'm doing more isolation exercises, it tends to be at least sets of 12 up, up to sets of 20 um, working on that endurance. And then if I'm doing more of my kind of big meathead exercises, you know, rows, pull downs, things along those lines, that, that, that set and rep scheme tends to be more geared around increasing overall strength as long as the person's able to tolerate it. Um, but with like isolation exercises, trap exercises, um, all your periscopular stuff, it's all based on control and endurance for the most part. Right, right. Um, all right, let's get a little bit more into our interventions, what type of exercises we like to do. I know we talked about like your stage one pain modulation. That's going to be more your progressive range of motion, your table slides. We already discussed on the previous season how pulleys, for me, I mean, I, I don't really use them often just because of the high rotator cuff activity. If someone is in high pain irritability, I think it's just a little bit too much. That's based on a article from JOSPT that looks at activities of daily living and routine rehab exercises. The article agrees it just doesn't advocate for pulleys because of the excessive rotator cuff activation early on. It may just be um, too much where it keeps them in an irritated state. So we're going to focus more on our stage two exercises. And then of course, stage three is going to be more where you can get creative, get into more of those weightlifting type movements, sports specific movements. So that's really where your creative mind can go to work. So we, we won't even touch on that too much because you could probably go on Instagram and see a bunch of different strength and conditioning, sports specific type PTs that create all these great exercises that are just complex for certain sports. So that could be a whole episode in itself. But let's talk about the ones that are kind of your basic strengthening. We wanted to look at the research and see what are the most favorable exercises for promoting activity and a certain desired result from participating or, or doing those exercises. So Mike, what are some of your favorite like go-to rotator cuff strengthening exercises right when you've transitioned into stage two and you just want to start strengthening? A lot of times I want to get after the posterior rotator cuff and a lot of times also kind of that, that low trap scapular retractors. So probably the easiest kind of least invasive ones that I've found tend to be that sideline external rotation and just a prone extension. And the, that was kind of one of the ones I picked up from one of my clinical instructors, you know, early on during PT school. It was kind of one of those, these exercises are great. People tend to tolerate them very well. Great starting point. During my early career, kind of attempted from time to time to kind of deviate from that. And sometimes it works, but almost all the time, those tend to be great, easy ones to introduce kind of early on. And then from there, you can kind of progress that to bands, different planes of motion, cable machines. Then you can start to work the shoulder into more elevation into kind of that prone T with mid trap. I found that a lot of people have a very hard time with like your prone Y. It's challenging. Uh, very challenging exercise. So for the prone Y, instead of doing that, what I'll tend to do is do more of like a uh, wall slide mm -hmm. and then have them go into kind of like a standing Y essentially where they're rotating their shoulder blades back and down, kind of shoulder blades in the back pocket and try and get more low trap activation that way. So those tend to be a lot of my kind of basic starting exercises. I think for me, as soon as someone is transitioning from that phase one to phase two, if I want to be conservative and make sure that I'm getting some strengthening, a good go-to for me is always that prone shoulder extension. That one, usually I can get in pain-free, even if it's like a moderate irritability and there's still some pain there, I can usually get them strengthening with that exercise relatively pain-free. And that's got some rotator cuff activation, some periscapular activation as far as like mid-trap. You'd get a little bit of infraspinatus in there. So it's it's a good exercise that has some decent rotator cuff 
cuff activity that's usually pretty non-threatening. So that's always my go-to. And then a prone row, same, same thing. You get that muscle activation from all those that I previously mentioned, relatively pain-free. And those would be my two go-tos to get started. Like you mentioned, Pro T and Prone Y, I usually introduce those in the middle or the end of phase two. I think it requires a lot of scapular control. And especially if they have a lot of upper trap contribution over activation, like you mentioned, can be very challenging them for them to perform accurately. So I usually introduce that those a little bit later. So I kind of have like a big five. I do like the prone shoulder extension, prone row. I get them on their side doing sideline ER with the towel underneath their arm. That's just based on a study that looked with a little bit of abduction in the upper arm. You're going to have increased rotator cuff activation. Sideline flexion has been demonstrated to have some good periscapular muscle activation. So those would be my big ones. And then for a low intensity, high serratus, low pec minor, I do like a supine serratus punch just focusing more on movement quality rather than any true strengthening. I just really want them to figure out how to isolate that motion without hyperextending through their lumbar spine, any compensatory strategies like excessive shrugging during the retraction part of the phase and, and making sure they're getting good solid protraction. So when I do transition to more complex serratus exercises, they know what to look for. So once they've gotten past that, Mike, what are some other things that you like to include as far as strengthening goes? That's kind of like my big five that I do just kind of like on the table when, once they've transitioned. Do you typically do something similar? What's your, uh, what's your game plan look like? Yeah, I think my game plan is pretty similar to that in those kind of first stages, essentially just figure out simple exercises that they can do that start working on the musculature and postural stuff that we're eventually going to be working on and just start to introduce something. They're probably still fairly irritable at that point, so you're not really going to be able to get after much, essentially just getting them moving and, and starting the shoulder, calming down and start to introduce the motions that you want to get after. Yeah, I think one that I forgot to mention that I really like actually is a diagonal row. So that's about 45 degree angle they're rowing and they usually use like a light dumbbell. And all I'm really focusing on here is facilitating medial rotation of the shoulder blade. Imagine like, have you ever seen anyone do like a bent over row? Like they're standing at the dumbbell rack in the gym. Mm -hmm. So their arm is almost like at a 45 degree angle and kind of like hanging. And that's going to pull their shoulder blade up into a little bit of upward rotation and protraction. So when they go back to pull, I'm actually having them bring that shoulder blade down and back into a medially rotated retracted position. And that's going to specifically target the rhomboids. So any, any real diagonal row is going to put you in a slightly upward rotated position so you can facilitate medial rotation for the rhomboids, where if you were to do a straight plane, sagittal plane row, it's going to be strictly protraction to retraction. When you say diagonal, um, are you referring to the positioning of the torso, the elbow, the position of the resistance? So the angle of the resistance is going to be at a diagonal. Your torso would also be at a diagonal. But if you were imagine like you're bent over and zero degrees is your arm by your side and 90 degrees is your hand in line with your shoulder, it's going to be 45 degrees somewhere in the middle and they're pulling at about a 45 degree angle. So it's going to look kind of like if you go to the gym, you see someone standing over a dumbbell rack and they're kind of like slightly bent over, but their torso isn't parallel to the floor. That's going to be like your diagonal row. Okay, that's perfect. And then as far as supraspinatus, I was reading some articles that did talk about full can. Now, I don't really use full can too much, but it was basically saying that it was a great supraspinatus activation exercise that also minimized deltoid activity. So excessive deltoid activity is going to promote that superior humeral head migration and potentially contribute to that impingement quote unquote position. So I thought that was interesting incorporating a full can to get supraspinatus firing, but still minimizing that deltoid activity. Mike, do you use full can or what's your, I, I personally don't, I just read this article and thought it was interesting. 
Um, I mean, yeah, I, I use Volcan exercises some, sometimes. I, I mean, it's not one of something that I always go to. One thing I like to do for like super spinatus activation is just work them with a band or a cable machine, depending on, on what I have access to. Just kind of in that zero to 30 degrees of elevation, just with the band pulling posteriorly. That's where I, I tend to start. And then from there, I might progress it to more of your standard kind of lightweight full can type exercise. I don't really use empty can much. I think most people have kind of moved away from, from empty can. I don't really see that being talked about too too much anymore. Yeah. I think that we're probably a little bit too scared of that exercise as a whole. Um, but I guess if you're going to get the same amount of muscle activation with, with a full can, why put the shoulder in a little bit more of a risky position that in, internal internal rotation? So, And then another exercise that I think is still appropriate for that early phase that I uh, forgot to mention is a supinated shoulder flexion to shoulder height. This is actually going to uh, strain the bicep tendon at the origin of the supraglenoid tubercle. So if you feel like they have bicep tendon involvement, I usually just screen this with like a speeds and yergeson test during the evaluation. Again, I don't hang my hat too much on special tests. I honestly, I think JSPT just came out with a commentary that pretty much said they really don't tell us too much. And I and I agree with that. I've been hearing that at conferences back since I was a student. A lot of the top shoulder rehabilitation specialists kind of just say, you know, throw them in the trash type of thing. They're more, they're more for just general orthos to kind of screen and figure out if imaging is needed. But from a treatment perspective, they really don't give us any guidance. But I, I really do like that supinated shoulder flexion. I see a lot of individuals incorporating bicep curls, which maybe I'll use sometimes, but not too often, just because that's going to strain more of the distal portion of the bicep, where I really want to strain that proximal bicep tendon at the at the origin. Yeah, I mean, I think you brought up a good point with the with like the special testing. It's especially when we see patients, it's a little more chronic. We're not normally seeing them like acutely day one. I, I think that you know some special tests have a little more a little more merit super early on before the body is compensated in different ways, and we have other other layers to peel back to get to the issue. So yeah, I mean, definitely with special tests, it's not always super great in our kind of setting. But that being said, I think that still just understanding your anatomy and know what tissues you're stressing when, just like you said, with like that supinated you know, kind of resisted shoulder flexion hitting that biceps tendon more so than your full cam position where you're going to be getting a little bit more of that kind of super spinatus there. So if you have exactly. pain in one more so than the other, then it's reasonable to assume that we might have a little bit more biceps tendon involvement than super spinatus involvement. Right. So something as simple as that, like, sure, maybe the special tests aren't perfect, right? But we need to kind of still do things to create a clinical picture in our brain. So I think understanding, I think also where special tests come from. They just come from someone that realistically understood how a different joint or shoulder or ligament or muscle or whatever worked. And then they published a paper on some sort of position that should in theory stress that tissue and then put their name on it. And then we have a special test from it. Right. So they all went through the same schooling that we did. They just kind of published a paper on stressing a tissue in a certain way. So if you understand the anatomy and how the stress different tissues, you don't really need special tests all that much. You just kind of need to stress tissue and see what seems to be your pain generator. That's an important clarification to make. I think um, kind of hit it on the head there that if you know your anatomy, you can kind of stress what you're trying to investigate. And if it produces a positive result, then that kind of leads you down that path. And the important thing that you mentioned is, is understanding what tissues are involved with the movement and then realizing, okay, this might be a contributor. 
I think a lot of students get lost in special tests because they're so worried about telling their CI what the diagnosis is. And the whole time in PT school, and this is, I think, the most confusing thing, is you're being taught how to diagnose all of these musculoskeletal things and diagnoses. And then later you're, you're being told, well, the diagnosis doesn't really matter because there's people that have these particular changes on imaging and they're benign and they don't have pain. So the whole DPT curriculum is built around diagnosing because part of the DPT is being able to be a first contact provider in triage. And then I think no one ever really clarifies that diagnosing pathoanatomy isn't necessarily crucial for treatment once you've gotten past the triage phase. So I think that's just a confusing thing for students. I see all the time people post like, so-and-so has this diagnosis. What do I do for that diagnosis? And it really doesn't give us a clinical picture and it really doesn't help us guide treatment. But I think that's important is using special tests or even using positions that you know stress certain structures to identify the contributors like we've been talking about this whole episode rather than saying, ah, I figured it out. Three out of four of these tests are positive and this is their diagnosis. Let me see what the textbook says I need to do for that diagnosis. I think that can really, really complicate your treatment in your life if you try to approach every case in in that way. And it's confusing because even CIs do it. You walk out of the eval, CI tells you, all right, give me your top three differentials. And it's kind of like, all right, these things could be there on imaging based on what I've seen, but is it relevant to their treatment? So that's kind of the hard part. But we'll move on here. I did want to talk about a little bit more serratus strengthening, kind of a rabbit hole that I fell down at one point was chasing what I wanted to find as my favorite serratus exercise and kind of looked at all the different angles as to what would make up a good serratus exercise. And one thing that I noticed is that you're going to have your pec minor create um, that anterior tilting of the shoulder blade and contribute to a little bit of that protraction. So a lot of the serratus exercises that we do obviously involve sagittal plane uh, protraction. A lot of the serratus exercises that we do involve protraction. So I wanted to see, you know, how much activity of the pec minor was occurring. And and one thing that I realized or that I discovered doing my research is that looking at your serratus to pec minor ratio is, is crucial. So you want to make sure you have high serratus activity with low pec minor activity, just because increasing activity of the pec minor may contribute to that tightness, that anterior tilting, potential shoulder impingement. Again, this is theory, not absolute, but I like to have all the options open and and consider all of the options when making my decisions. And the one that I found that was high serratus activity, low pec minor, and also involved multidirectional planes was D1 flexion. So this one involved scapular protraction, upward rotation, and it was a multiplanar movement that mimicked uh, real life in certain sports-specific activities. So I thought that one was valuable. And then again, for just introducing serratus the serratus punch supine had some pretty high serratus activity with low pec minor, but again, you're not getting the upward rotation component. And then push up plus also had some pretty good serratus activity when compared to other standard exercises. It's kind of all I have, Mike, from the exercise realm. Anything else that you wanted to throw in? Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of along those uh, same serratus lines, just thinking about high pec minor activation and things along those lines, where I think that it's definitely important to know what exercises you can use to minimize activation of muscles that you don't want, which is like super important. But I think once they're kind of out of that painful phase, I'm not necessarily as concerned about it. Right. I'm trying to train the motion pain-free. So even if I have a little bit of higher 
detect minor activation with something. If it doesn't hurt, I honestly really don't care that much as long as they're getting into upward rotation. That's a good uh, point. And I think, you know, another thing to think about, we were concerned from the pec minor from from really the standpoint of pulling that shoulder blade into that kind of forward tipped, kind of kind of rounded rounded position. So as long as they have the ability to get out of that, they have, they have the mobility that, that, their, that their shoulder can actually move into that retraction posterior tip, then as long as movements are, are pain-free, I kind of give them free reign and just make sure that their overall movement looks decent. I think kind of minimize, minimizing that muscle activation is more when they're painful. I think it's a super important part, but I think once they're out of that, um, not hanging your hat on that too much is kind of where I tend to go. That's a good point. You hit on two good points there, actually. Uh, the first being that, again, everything that we're saying of, of how we do certain things, exercises that we like or don't like, none of these are absolutes. You're 100% right. The minute that you know they're pain-free or if they're pain-free from the get-go with certain movements and you just want to facilitate a specific movement or train resiliency to a specific movement, worrying about the nitty-gritty of there's too much activity of certain muscles compared to another muscle um, really becomes irrelevant at that point, just because it's it's not, it really becomes irrelevant at that point, just because it's not going to make or break their rehab. And it actually might be beneficial for them to build some resiliency into those movements. Again, no, nothing that we're saying is ever in absolutes. We like to present all the considerations that you can have during rehab. But again, there's certain patients where the things that I use that work with one patient don't necessarily work with another. So it's more just to present the information. We don't want you to think that we're telling you that these are the only exercises to do and that all the other ones that, that you do are dumb or, or not right because of this research article that found you know high pec minor activity in a certain exercise. So that's a good distinction to make. And then you mentioned the scapular mobility. One thing that we didn't talk about that I really like to incorporate at least early on, especially for those shoulders that either have gone through the process of like seeing their PCP going to ortho, then they end up at you four to six weeks later is addressing scapular mobility. Whether they've been in a sling or just using their arm less, scapular mobility can become impaired and diminished. And I think just working on that shoulder blade and restoring that normal scapular mobility and motion is going to be beneficial. Yeah. I could not agree more. Cool. And then the last thing that I wanted to touch on before we close up here, Mike, was during those prone T's and Y exercises, we discussed how they're very difficult to kind of engage without excessive upper trap activation. Activation, And usually what I do is I have them engage that shoulder blade as gently as they physically can to get it back into like downward rotation and retraction. If they do it too aggressively, they're going to actually overactivate that upper trap. But if I can get a very gentle retraction downward rotation and then have them engage the motion again gently because if they do it too aggressively they're going to just recruit everything i usually get a better result than just having say okay lift your arm into a t lift your arm into a y and i think this has to do with looking at your length tension relationship i think when you get the shoulder blade down and back just gently so that you're not over recruiting other muscles that's going to put that low trap that mid trap those muscles in a better length tension relationship and improve the probability that they can actually recruit the muscles that you're trying to target. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the one thing that makes that more difficult a lot of times is that kind of tight pec minor, like kind of, you know, yeah. what, what we're talking about. So making sure that if someone just doesn't have the mobility in their scapula to get into that position, you need to create the mobility first through stretching, hands-on techniques, whatever. And then once they have the mobility, then you can then work them into strengthening. If they're too stiff to get into that position, it doesn't matter how many whys you do, it's not going to help. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great point is early on, always identifying the mobility impairments that are going to prevent you from 
getting the desired effect you want during your active movement, and then using your manual therapy to free up motion to then engage in the meat and potatoes of your treatment, which is going to be pain-free active movement to uh, recruit certain muscles or musculature that's important for the desired activity and outcome. So I think that was very important to to bring up. And I think that does it, Mike. Anything else that you wanted to discuss? I feel like we definitely touched on a lot of different topics and a lot of different research that we've read. Again, if you want us to reference specifically what research article, when, when we make a certain statement, just reach out and message or comment us and we will get that over to you. It's just we didn't want to bore you with mentioning an author every other sentence. So anything you wanted to touch on, Mike, before we wrap up here? Uh, no, I think we hit on a lot of pretty good points. And hopefully people found this a little bit beneficial. Help them kind of shape how you think about things. Cool. Yeah, I think season two, we're just going to hit all the different regions. We'll start it with the shoulder. We'll probably work our way to the neck and then go down to the low back, hip, knee, kind of just work our way down. And that will wrap season two. It'll just be hitting every different region, looking at the research, and then moving forward, if we uh, decide to do a season three, I think we'll get into more specific special topics. Like, well, maybe we'll look at like barbell movements, like squatting, look at the research with that movement analysis running, throwing, maybe do a lit review of manual therapy and the effects. Uh, I think really there's a lot of special topics we can cover moving forward. So that's what to expect from season two. And depending on how everything goes, we'll uh, we'll just keep doing some research reviews and try to produce some content that, that you guys find beneficial and, and helpful. Thank you everyone for listening to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you are interested in reading any of the research that we uh, referenced during this episode, just send us a message or a comment and we'd be glad to send that over to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks guys.